Hi, this is Nick Dawson, the editor-in-chief of TalkHouse Film, and you're listening to the TalkHouse Film Podcast. When I first started talking to Alex Cox about doing something for the TalkHouse, he immediately mentioned Ben Wheatley as a filmmaker he was excited about. So when I was thinking about pairing Cox with another director for a podcast, Wheatley's name naturally came to mind. In many ways, the two are kindred spirits, both making work that is bold, original, idiosyncratic. Cox plays a trail with Repo Man, Walker, Sid and Nancy, Straight to Hell, and Highway Patrolman, while also bringing great, underappreciated cinema to the masses with his BBC film series, Movie Drum, which he curated and introduced. And Wheatley is carving out new, exciting territory with his films, Down Terrace, Kill List, Sightseers, and A Field in England. Both could be described as genre filmmakers, but their works actively defy easy classification. The two have been friends over email for a while, but unbeknownst to me, had never spoken before this podcast, let alone met in person. Maybe that will happen soon. As you'll hear over the next 35 minutes or so, Cox and Wheatley have a lot of mutual respect for one another and a shared adoration of and enthusiasm for great movies. In their conversation, the two talk about their new projects, Wheatley's High Rise, which has just hit the festival circuit, and Cox's Tombstone Rashomon, a multi-perspective western he's now crowdfunding. But also a lot more, from their favorite portmanteau films, and the difference between Charlie Kaufman and Charlton Heston, to the forgotten genius of Peter Watkins, and how Repo Man invented supermarket generic brands. Ben, so it's nice to meet you by audio after meeting you via uh, email. Yeah, we're slowly moving towards some kind of um, human connection, I guess, <laughs> at some point. One day. <laughs> one day we will see each other's faces. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's odd. So what are you doing? What, what, what are you doing in, uh, in Switzerland? I am uh, screening High Rise, which is the new film that we've, we've made, the, the adaptation. Oh, of you it? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it, just, it, it showed in Toronto... Last week was the premiere, and then we just—I've just been in San Sebastian, so we were showing it there, and now Zurich, and then London Film Festival, and then hopefully that'll be it done for a bit until it gets its uh, release in March, I think, in the UK. Great. How was San Sebastian? Oh, it was amazing. I've never been before. I mean, I've been to Sitges, which is which is brilliant, and um, I love going to Spain anyway. Um, but uh, yeah, and it went down a storm in San Sebastian, so it was really, really great. And excellent. Have you been? You, and how, was the, been how was the food? How was the food in San Sebastian? <laughs> Am I that transparent? <laughs> That's what. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was brilliant. You know, I mean, it. it I, I love Spanish food, so it was. Uh, yeah. Have you shown? St- you must have shown stuff at, at San Sebastian. But they've got. I, I think. Yeah, I went to the festival one time. And I just remember the seafood was fantastic. And, and this thing happened. This guy um, from the festival, one of the festival organizers said to me, you speak English, right? I go, yeah. And he goes, do you want to take somebody out to lunch right. uh, for us? Because he's an American guest and we want someone who speaks English to take him out and entertain him. So I said, okay, you know, who is it? Jack Palance. Wow, come on. <laughs> and, I, and I got to take Jack they gave me like a big wad of, of, of pesetas you know hundreds and hundreds of pesetas and they sent me to this fishing village with Jack Palance and we had like an amazing lunch and he was like such a erudite and nice man you know that was incredible so I, yeah I love 
Basically. That's incredible. I, I, I don't have a, a, an anecdote that will match that, but I did, I did meet um, Charlie Kaufman for about 10 seconds. And, um, and I spent my 10 seconds wisely by saying um, that I thought his uh, films were incredible. Um, and, and he kind of just um, nodded at me, kind of slightly embarrassed, but I don't care, you know, because when you, when you meet people that you, you like their stuff, you have to say you like it, don't you? And how, he must be very, how old do you think he is? Charlie, he's not, I don't know, for, for, I would like to say. He's not that old, I don't think. Well, he's, you know, he's, in his, he's probably 50 odd, I would have thought. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, because our connection is bad. I thought you said Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston? No, he's he's dead. Oh. Who did you say? Tell, tell me the name again, because I'm just... Charlie Charlie Kaufman. You know, who wrote. Um, oh yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, not yeah. not Heston. Not Chuck Heston. That would have that would have been you know very late at night if I'd imagined meeting him down there. <laughs> How did High Rise turn out? Yeah, good. I mean, you know, it, it's it's a pretty crazy fucking movie, you know, and I, I'm, it, it, it's interesting kind of, um, I think we were very lucky to to get to make it as freely as we did. You know, I mean, Amy, and Amy Jump, who wrote it and who wrote um, uh, Field in England and and yeah. Sightseeds and Kill List and all the, all the films pretty much except for Down Terrace, which I wrote with Rob Hill. And she, you know, between her writing it and uh, and us editing it together, th- there was hardly any uh, interference at all. You know, there was nothing. We never we were never under the under the cosh from anybody. So it's all our own work. We're we're either you know we're totally either to blame for it or responsible for it. You know, so it, it, it yeah, and um, it, it felt like um, I don't know. It's like Getting away one of those, the last big crazy counterculture books, getting it to the screen in a way, because it, it just doesn't really happen anymore, does it? No, that's great. No, that's really good because I know I mean, people have been talking about doing high rise for a long time, and the guy that I'm working with, Rudy Wurlitzer, he was hired to write a script of high rise once yeah. upon a time, but that never got. Yeah, yeah. Made. Yeah, I think they've been writing it since the, there's been versions kicking around since the book was written. You know, going back to I think yeah. Bruce Rob, Bruce Robinson did one, and um, who else was it? Yeah, there's loads of loads of different people, and even Nick Rogue was attached to it for a, for a bit as well, right at the, in, in the uh, late seventies. But I think I don't yeah. know why I don't know why it never got made. I mean, I think it, I think it's it, it's a tricky one because it you know it, it's anti aspirational, and I think people yeah. are always scared of that stuff. You know, because it, it it's um, you know, it's saying basically the basic message is saying even if you're really, really rich and comfortable, it can all go to shit, and no, no one really wants to hear that. You know, it's no, uh, it's not the it's no, not it's the a system. dangerous message. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's not a it's not a comforting message that isn't it? But um, but yeah, it was uh, yeah. I mean, you know, and we got to it's the first film I've done which um I've been able to have sets and build sets and kind of control the environment a bit more, and that was a real treat. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? When you actually can, you can do that. That's really exciting. Actually, I was thinking of you. I was thinking of you when we because there's there's some there's a big supermarket scene in it, and we um, designed all the cans in the supermarket because um, I didn't want to get into that world of having you know oh it's a curly whirly and it's a you know having people thinking a retro way about the because it's we, the, the version we did is set in the seventies. 
Um, so, uh, yeah. so designed everything. But then I was thinking, I remember a really striking thing I remember from Repo Man for me was the the design in it and the and the the labels and stuff in the in the supermarkets and how how it felt like it, you at first you thought you felt like it was a, a movie that was set um a contemporary film but then it suddenly it felt like it was almost in an alternate reality yeah and it kind of was because it was it was so even though it was a, it was a contemporary film, but it was also it was also constantly referenced referencing Kiss Me Deadly, you know. And yeah, so there's this yeah. sort of film noir aspect to it, and and I think we had actually tried to get product placement and failed. <laughs> you know, screw it, we just make everything generic. Yeah, I think that worked really well as well. And it's weird how how kind of um, things catch up because the actual the 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 Sainsbury's basic oh is it the Tesco's basic range actually looks like the the, the tins of, uh, of of lager and and beans in in Repo Man now so it's almost like he's been copied and John Lydon when John Lydon came out with his um with a PIL album called Album yes he gave that the same generic branding yeah. I thought it was a great honor, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fucking that's amazing, isn't it? But um, yeah, I mean, I remember the, I remember the first time I saw Repo Man actually, and it, and it, and the thing, it was a, it was a film that just the just from the titles alone, um, the way it kind of scanned across the map and it and that and and the way that the music was so aggressive, it it really it's one of the few films I think you know when you you see it out of the corner of your eye and then you're suddenly grabbed by it. And the only other movie I can think of that the happened to me with was, um, I remember my sister rented Goodfellas on VHS and I hadn't seen it. And I put my head around the door of her bedroom and she was watching this thing. And I saw like, you know, 10 seconds of it. And I went, Jesus Christ, and I had to run out of the room and, and rent it and see it, you know. And I think yeah. that, that the, the, the beginning of uh, Repo Man's the same thing. But it's that kind of, um, the spirit of it was, a, it was a, you know, and I, and I guess it's across all, all the films you've made, but the spirit of it is, um, is so refreshing and so um, strong, you know, and uh, and outside of uh, the world of other movies, almost, you know. Well, I think it was that was the first movie that Iggy Pop was involved in, in terms of doing anything. I mean, later he's been an actor and stuff, and he's acting in a Dario Argento movie now. But but I think that was the first film that he actually did did anything for, and it was just he was just so perfect, you know, for the main theme. Yeah. Um, so I think a little bit, I mean, of that Iggy spirit, if the Iggy spirit can inhabit anything, then it's, it's going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> so was that, the, was that, was Repo Man the film that had been, is that an expanded version of, no, you did a, you did a, um, a short film, didn't you, that expanded out into a feature first, wasn't it? No, I did a short, I did, well, I did a, a very long short, which is a terrible thing to do. You know, I did, when I was a student at UCLA, I did a short that was like 40 minutes long yeah. called Edge City or Superstition. And that is yeah. the most stupid thing you can possibly do because it's too short to be a feature and too long to play as a short. Um, yeah. Yeah, I remember so that, was it? I cut it. Have you seen that, that Jean Roland film where he, he did that as a short, didn't he? And, and, and then he turned it into a feature and it kind of, it gets... 15 minutes in and the titles come up and then the t then it starts again <laughs> and it just expands uh, out which is brilliant you know 
did you see this Argentinian film called Cuentos Salvajes, Wild Tales? Oh, no, I didn't see that yet. It's like five shorts, um, and they're all with different actors, same director, um, but all about people driven to rage and acts of revenge. Um, it's really good. Um, but there's no connection really between the stories at all, except this vague thematic thing that they all feature somebody who's really angry. And does that work? Because sometimes with those portmanteau things, you get one that you don't like, and then you kind of tune out a little bit, or is it they're all as strong as each other, are they? Yes, and it's interesting because there's also there's a film that I'm sure you've seen called, um, oh, what do they call it? Histoire uh, Fantastique, you know, the one that, the Fellini directed one of the yeah, episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's Ro- Ropo Dammit. Gag. Ropo Gag as well, is it, that one? Which is the which is Goddard and... You know that? What's that one called? Maybe we're talking about the same thing. No, it's another one, because the Fellini, the Fellini one with Toby Dammit has got a couple of other stories. They're all supposedly uh, Edgar Allan Poe. But right, the thing, right. the Fellini one is really good. It's the Fellini one's a bad... I think it's Fellini's best film. Wow. And then the other two is one by Roger Vadim and there's one by somebody oh, yeah, else, yeah. but they're just, eh. <laughs> but, uh, I was re-looking at um, New York Stories as well the other day, you know, the, the Scorsese, um, Coppola, Woody Allen one. Yes. And I was remember at the time, obviously, I thought the, the Scorsese one was the best one and the Woody Allen one was all right, and I didn't like the Coppola one. But I rewatched it the other day, and it feels, it's really odd. It's like the, the, the Coppola one, it, it, it's, it's almost like a like a precursor to all the, um, the Wes Anderson stuff, you know, in its design and, it, and, and the subject matter and stuff. And, it, and it's actually kind of, you know, I think it's, it's bubbling up there as one of my, my more of a, a favourite in the, in the three. I think it was really because it was about, because it was about losing a child, wasn't it, as I recall? Well, it was, it was the kind of, it was that thing of, because um, it was written by Sophia Coppola, wasn't it? So it was about her, their you know, her experience of being in New York, wasn't it? I think. Yeah, but I th- isn't there something about a lost child or a dead child or something? Because I know that, because Coppola had, his son had been killed and his sound designer, Richard Beggs, his daughter had been killed as well. And so, Incredible. you know, in, in, in really tragic and unnecessary circumstances. And so it seemed to me that the film, I had to such a long time ago, I have to see it again, but I felt like yeah. there was a lot of sort of sincerity and depth to that you know yeah 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 um but i really loved it i remember loving that scorsese one because that was um it was it was like his whole it was it was a kind of joining movie wasn't it, it was before it was, I think it was just before goodfellas so it's like a compression of all that style you know lots of in, very fast camera movement and um punctuation and then the use, use of um uh it was an interesting use of like kind of uh uh, diegetic sound and and pop music all over the top of each other and and accompanying camera moves and stuff. So when the when the camera would swoop across the uh, the loft, you'd get the sound of a, a car squealing in the distance and stuff. And I, I remember at yeah. the time that you, that's just yeah. incredible, you know. Yeah. Hey, you use that word diegetic. Yeah. Am I allowed to? No, I. <laughs> you have. You know what's funny? Because I actually I for I I had a four year gig teaching film at yeah. um, CU, uh, University of Colorado in Boulder. And the first class that I taught, one of the students, one of the undergraduates said, um, talk, re- re- made a reference to diegetic sound. I didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> I don't know, what? <laughs> you know, I mean, 
Oh, you mean source music? Yeah. But it's so but, interesting that the word diegetic exists because I actually hadn't, I never heard that word until this, like, this 19 year old student said it to me. And then I realized, wow. Yeah. I mean, I probably, I'm probably bandying it about with not knowing what it, what it really means. For me, it's like the, it's, it's, it's the sound in the room. It's the real sound, isn't it? It's sound that's yeah, kind of coming from, a, from exactly. something, you know. Um, it's like diegetic music is like when W.C. Fields takes his mandolin out of the box in yeah, in the yeah, fate of yeah. Lassiter and plays the mandolin on camera. That's diegetic music. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's or, the only, I mean, I ended up using it a lot because it's the only clear way of talking about when when you're doing sound design. You know what? You know where the sound is coming from and um, and how we're gonna. You know. Because I think that's the other thing, it gets really complicated, doesn't it? When, it, when you go in and out of music, where music is in the room and then music is in uh, is non-diegetic, but it's the same track, you know, and it's how do you make that transition between the, the slightly bassy, echoey version of the music, which is meant to be that they're listening to, to the more elevated, you know, the music that's in the, in the, in the mind of the film almost. Yes. Yeah, and it's and that, well. That's part. Of, that's the fun of sound design, isn't it? And that's yeah. why there are sound designers, is because they have this, just have this whole landscape, this palette of audio that you know that, and it's quite new sound design. I mean, it's only been. I mean, there's only been sound designers officially for about thirty years or something. Since I think, I yeah, think it's, Apocalypse Now was one of the first films that had a, that officially had a sound designer. I, I love the story of Apocalypse Now, where they were that was one of his. Uh, plans was to build a cinema in the middle of America, wasn't it? Where you could only see Apocalypse Now and then get people oh, to travel travel to it. And then it would be the only cinema in America that would have quadraphonic sound. Yes. Which That's is right. really that was the idea, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. The ultimate event film. I think that the, the filmmakers of, um, of, of my generation owe an absolute um, debt to you, Alex, through the um, for for movie drone, you know, and I think it, oh, I think I think it, I think it completely nice. changed a generation of, of people, you know, being having that um, all those films uh, collated together and and those introductions. I mean, I, you know, I I find it I. I I, I find that when I go back and look at what my favourite films are, they definitely haven't fallen far from <laughs> from the choices of the first few series that you did. Um, how how funny! And you know, those were all there were almost all films that the BBC had under licence already, and they were just sitting in the bin, you know, and they didn't quite know where to put them. Oh, in the schedule. I didn't know that. Um, wow. One or two, I was able to get them to buy in some Italian westerns. So right. I think that I was responsible for the screenings of Django and yeah. Requiescan and The Big Silence. Right, those were right. like the first kind of official screenings of those films because they'd all been banned. You know, those were the first official screenings of those films in England. Yeah. And other than that, you know, it was just all stuff that they had acquired, you know, and oh, just didn't know what to do with, didn't quite know where to, where to put it in the schedule. That's bad. I never knew that. I always thought that you'd gone out with a big net and a bag of cash and caught all these movies and brought them in. No, and in fact, when I, I would try to do that, but normally I'd kind of, it would get shot down because I'd try and get them to, to bring in Francesco Rossi films. I'd go, oh, let's do a double bill of Salvatore Giuliano and the Mate Affair. You know, yeah. and they go, oh, sure, sure, kid. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they did increase it. It was interesting that over the five years that I did it, 
this thing came in that the BBC, they just weren't going to play any more foreign language stuff. Yeah. I mean, maybe that would get relegated. Yeah, that would get relegated to the digital channels later. But, but um, I mean, they don't. There's nothing anymore, is there, of creating of films or because it was film. Was it film movie club or film club as well, which was at the same time that we used to run on BBC Two, and then there was a couple of other things, and then Film Four, um, Channel Four would run loads of um, um, movie, uh, you know, the seasons and stuff. And I remember seeing tons of stuff that way but now it's i guess i don't know i mean i I guess that because as digital came in it separated out all the ways of seeing movies that the national television just stepped away from it you know yeah but it's that they shouldn't because the thing is you only can access something if you know about it unless you run into it by chance and that was the great thing about television is you could turn on like regular television and be surprised by what was there yeah but if you're going to go you know, if if you don't know that there's a film called Yojimbo, you're not yeah. going to look for a film called Yojimbo, you know? No, well, certainly not on um, on the way that the digital works now, because you never get all the way to Y, would you? <laughs> no, that's right. You never get all the way to Y anyway. Yeah, you're never going to see Z. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Peter Greenaway's screwed, isn't he? Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it was... Uh, yeah, I remember like seeing Alphaville for the first time, and I think that that was one of the ones you, you showed, wasn't it? And, and just yeah, that, that was one of the first ones to show. And just it just blew my mind, you know. Sat there going, "What? What is this? It's insane!" And he's just trying to deal with the idea of obviously, you know, that he'd shot in a in a contemporary at the time city, and that was the future that you could do that, and it and it perfectly worked. Also, that basically hidden within that movie is basically Blade Runner, isn't it? You know, there's whole scenes in that film which are the same as Blade Runner, that you know, shot for shot almost. And um, and I think that was my first introduction to Goddard. And then after that, um, I kind of sought out stuff like Weekend and and Buddha Sooth. But um, yeah, I mean, so I'm I I got I got a chance to thank you, and I'm thanking you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for thanking me. That's very nice. <laughs> um, and also, but you and I, we also both are in the in debt to Peter Watkins, are we not? Uh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, Peter Watkins, boy, Culloden and The War Game are yeah. two of the most important films I ever saw, you know. Yeah, well, it's almost he's invented, on his own, invented a whole kind of genre of television and no one talks about it, you know. It's so it's so bizarre to me that. Um, and when I saw, yeah, the first time I saw Culloden, it's just such a simple idea, isn't it, but it just hadn't been done before. No, and it was, it was like tough to watch when you saw it on TV the first time. I've never seen anything like it, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the war game as well. I mean, it's that. Um, it's the, there's a quote from it. Was it as a, a ten megaton bomb is like a door sounds like a door slamming in hell? And I thought, wow. <laughs> yeah. And it, was, it was read out by Michael Aspel, wasn't it? <laughs> and it's really weird because it turns out, like about ten years before the war game, the British government had committed this had, had commissioned a, a report called the Strath Report, which no one's ever heard about. Hmm. which said that um, in the event of a limited nuclear war in which only 12 bombs were dropped on Britain, the country probably would not be able ever to recover. Yeah. Um, The infrastructure would fall apart to such an extent that the country just wouldn't recover, wouldn't exist anymore as a viable entity. And, so the British government knew that in 1955. What did they do with that information? Oh, 
forget about it. I keep <laughs> building more bombs. Yeah, yeah. And then of course, you know, they... they knew what the result would be, and they kept building the bombs anyway because they were just, well, we don't know what to do, so we'll just carry on. Well, I suppose at that point it and doesn't then, matter, does it? Once you've got twelve, you know, once there's enough bombs to destroy the world, it's just doesn't, you know, you can't destroy it more. <laughs> but all you really need to do is break down the infrastructure because once the infrastructure of food distribution, just like Watkins shows in the movie, yeah. once the infrastructure is broken down, people are just going to starve and die of disease and revert to revert to feudalism. Uh, 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 yeah, yeah, basically re- re- revert to a high rise type lifestyle yeah <laughs> well that was the thing i remember do you remember threads as well did you see that the the one that was made later about the, the i remember it yeah yeah, yeah i yeah. remember it and there was an american series called the day after as well yeah, they yeah. did about potential for nuclear war yeah i mean threads, neither of them scared me like like the war game well i think threads threads scared me because i hadn't um i by that point uh, War game was still banned, wasn't it? And Threads, was, yeah, that's right. Threads, Threads has got one of the, mo- the greatest um, Radio Times covers ever, which is uh, a uh, uh, a parking uh, attendant with um, a bag over his head with an eye hole in it and um, holding a machine gun, and it just says Threads underneath it, you know. And I remember that as a kid, going, "What the hell's this all about?" And then watching it, you go, "Oh, this is this is going to happen, is it?" <laughs> and they were basically teaching. Yeah. Like teaching in schools, going is this you know this is this is the end kind of thing, and it, but um, yeah, it certainly uh, it was a long time before I visited Sheffield after that because I was so scared by threads. So, so should we talk a bit about um, the uh, your Rashomon project then? So what's going? What's oh happening? yeah. Well, I'm I'm here, I'm in Tucson, Arizona right now. I'm about to go with the, the man from the film commission to look at two cowboy towns. Um, one is called Old Tucson, and one is called Mescal. Um, and I'm going to go and scout these locations for a <laughs> for what looks like it's going to be like a thirty thousand um, dollar Western feature about um, the events outside the OK Corral in 1881. Um, we were trying originally to raise. Two hundred grand, two hundred thousand dollars, because we thought that might be doable, and then we can pay people, you know, minimum wage. Yeah. Um, and and I did a, a Kickstarter campaign a couple of years ago um, when I was teaching um, to do a film, a science fiction film. Yes. We were looking for a hundred thousand dollars, and we raised more than that. And so I'm thinking, easy peasy, man, let's do it again. But the thing is, science fiction is one thing, and a cowboy film with Rashomon in the title is something else. <laughs> um, I mean, the number of, how many people even know what Rashomon is? This didn't occur to me at the time, but yeah. I mean, one in a thousand people maybe know what Rashomon is. Uh, yeah. And so even though we as cineasts or people who watch movie drone probably do know what Rashomon is, but, but it's, you know, it's a struggle. So the campaign, well, by the time this podcast is, is audible, the campaign will already have ended and we'll have raised, you know, you know some tiny sum, a, a thousandth of what we need to make the film. So but how are you, you going to do it then? You know, is it going to be shot? Um, what are you going to shoot on? What's the, what's the camera, do you think? Some digital format, but I don't really care, you know, because by the time yeah. we shoot, there'll be some new camera out, you know, because yeah, yeah, it'll yeah. be shot. The, the science fiction film, we started shooting on 35. Yeah. Then we shot on 16. Then we shot on a Blackmagic camera. 
Um, yes. And then we finished the film. We did the last act on infrared. Oh, right. So, yeah. So, I mean, I'm up for any kind of yeah. format, really. I, I've um, been doing... It'll be digital, obviously. I've been testing um, iPhone. And I, I'm thinking about doing an iPhone movie for, for a while now. Just because you can shoot out in the street and no one will stare at you and think you're doing something. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the quality of it is quite, it's quite interesting, you know. And I, know, I think they're not to sound like an Apple kind of salesman but the uh the they're bringing out one in, a, in a, about 10 days which is 4k they reckon so it's, but i think that the actual cameras that the actual phone i've got in my pocket would do it would do it pretty well um because i kind of like the grunt the, the the kind of texture of the, those lower resolutions is quite actually is actually quite pleasing you know um but i was looking also at like older cameras like the the, the news gathering cameras of the uh, of the late 90s early 2000s which were you know Sixty thousand pounds or whatever to buy at the time or more, and now you can buy them on eBay for like um, twenty five pounds. Especially in America, they're really that, cheap. You know, that's the, and that's the real thing is you know people should never buy a camera. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. never yeah. buy a camera because it's going to be it's going to be redundant within two years. You know, if you if you want to buy some equipment, buy a tripod. Yeah, but also the other thing is I was, I was watching a thing about. Um, resolution and that's always the big thing they're trying to sell higher and higher resolutions and stuff and i and i read this thing um that they were saying around the making of wolf of wall street where they 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 looked at different resolution projection you know and that they reckon that if you stand at the back of a normal size auditorium and they play a blu-ray on a on a video projector you can't tell the difference between that and 4k and if you sit in the middle of the cinema and you look at the screen, you can't tell the difference between 2K and 4K. And if you sit right at the front, then you might, if you're an absolute pedant, be able to tell the difference between 2K and 4K. So basically, the, the, the definition has become independent. You know, it doesn't really matter anymore. You know, it does, it's not going to get better and better and better until you're looking at a screen and it looks like reality. It's already hit that point and it's already in the, uh, in the consumer world. You can get hold of those cameras. So the, the whole kind of thing of holding out and holding out for better and better equipment is gone. It's dead, you know. No, and also, it's just, I mean, it's just a big scam by Panasonic and Sony and these big companies to sell gear, isn't it? You know, I mean, yeah. because 4K is already redundant because they're coming out with 8K. Yeah, but that it really doesn't matter that there's no, you know, there's no, there's no system to screen either 4K or 8K material, you know, but yeah. it doesn't matter because they're going to sell, they're going to sell the consumer that, that, you know, those products anyway, Cause, you I mean, know, the, and... The thing that, that, that opened my mind to it was seeing... Um, uh, Festin and uh, those dogma, the early dogma movies, um, and seeing, and I had the camera that they shot Festin on, which was like a, I think it's called a PC one or something, which is a little uh, mini DV camera. And um, yes. and up to that point, I'd always thought I could never be a professional. I could never make a film because I need to make a, a short film on sixteen mil, and I could never work out how I'd ever raise the money to do it. And I watched that film and went, "Fuck me, it doesn't matter." You know, this is brilliant, and and because it, it's grainy, it's good. You know, it's not. It's the only thing. The the thing that stops you is the is the sound. You know, you can't tolerate bad sound, but you can certainly, as long as you can see their eyes, the image can be recorded any which way. You know, that's right, and you're right. And so then it becomes yeah, because the 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 ability to create good images is is inexpensive, you know, and ubiquitous, but good audio. <laughs> Yeah. It's another matter. You've got to really work on that, you know. Still, that hasn't changed. Yeah, yeah. That's that's all, all always a nightmare. 
yeah. So you yeah. so you're going out there with it. You've got how are you doing it then? Have you got like a kind of a, like a guerrilla crew? Are you going to shoot it all handheld, or is it going to be what's your what's your scheme for it? No, because I've got a tripod still. But no, we'll figure it out. I mean, I think what we have to do is we have to get to the end of the campaign, which will be four days from now. Um, I'm hoping that maybe, weirdly enough, that actually we might be able to get some actual investment in it as well. Yeah. So we'll end up with a very small budget to make a very weird, multi-perspective Western on the events outside the Gun Cave Corral. Yeah, Gun yeah. Corral. And, yeah. And we'll do that next spring when it's not too hot yeah. um, and I'm figuring out now so after my location scout I'm actually going to go to the University of Arizona and talk to the deputy director of that program who's a very nice woman about getting students to work on it yeah um, poor students once again being abused by you know by all <laughs> filmmakers with no budget <laughs> but it's interesting you know because when I was a young filmmaker I wasn't interested in young people at all I was interested in like old guys like Harry Dean Stanton and Dennis Hopper you know yeah. and and now I'm totally bored by old guys <laughs> you know I'm actually much more interested in what young people are going to do because they're going to inherit the mess that we've made, you know, they're going to have to deal with this nightmare, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's much more fun now just to be working with people in their twenties. It's odd, isn't it? I remember when I was at, um, in my twenties and uh, we, we, you know, or, and, and, and you'd be thinking, oh, I can't make any films because everyone I know is too young and they look really young on camera. We need old people because that's what serious stuff is. And then, yeah, as soon as you get to 40, you look back and go, now I'm going to make a film about my uh, childhood. Because <laughs> young people are much more interesting than old people. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but it's interesting. I mean, when we made the film uh, Field in England, it, the, uh, which was done on a very low budget done and shot very quick, the, one, of the, one of the things that's that... That's a wonderful film. That's just a wonderful film, and the acting in it is tremendous. Oh, cheers, man. Thanks. But it was the the thing that the, one of the reasons we were able to do it at low budget was, and it's the same thing that holds true to, 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 to cowboy movies as well, I think, is that no one changes their clothes. Yes. You know, it's brilliant. <laughs> so you only have to get one set of, of costumes. Yes, that's right. That's right. Because our whole story takes place in, 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 in two minutes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. They walk out of the saloon. It takes them one minute, 35, one minute 45 seconds to get to the gunfight location and 30 seconds to kill people and yeah. so yeah and then, so there's no gonna, costume changes because i did a, i did a lot of research on ballistics recently for for another film project and and i think that the and also for, for field in england as well because of the, they were saying in the in the um in the english civil war it would take uh, a man's weight in musket shot um to kill him as in you'd have to fire that many musket balls before you hit someone you know what I mean? Yes. And I think it was exactly the same with the with with the, with the pistols and rifles at that point, wasn't it? It's like, you know, they're... they're... Yeah, no, I, that's right. Yeah, I, I think in 30 seconds, I mean, I think at least as many bullets got fired off and most of them missed their targets. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, the, the, I think under under any kind of stress, um, it's very, very difficult to shoot anything that's not, abs not completely tied down and in front of you, <laughs> apparently, you know, unless you're a, a trained, you know... SAS bloke or, you know, Delta American Force. Sniper. Yeah, yeah, American, American Sniper. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's going to be a challenge, I think. No, I'm sorry to be really dull about the technical stuff, but it's going to be a challenge with the, uh, 
using um, guns and stuff on a low budget. I always say it scares me slightly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of that you can fix now because in the old days, you know, you used to go, oh, God, did you see the muzzle flash and that kind of thing? You know, but of yeah, course, yeah, now yeah. you put the muzzle flash in digitally and put the smoke in digitally and stuff. So in that sense, it'll be a little bit easier. But it's, it'll be tight. But you know, the thing is, it, it also that's going to force us to be very, very disciplined and structure it very carefully, you know, so yeah. you know what it is we're going to do before we do it. Do you think you go for a more like, I'm always like that thing when you look at um, um, a sort of, on Precinct 13 and you see how how storyboarded and how structured it all is do you think it's that it would, would it be that more, that kind of approach or will it be the way that digital work can work where you can have multiple cameras like three or four cameras and then you don't you only have to block it once and then go and you don't have to do loads and loads of coverage that's a good question isn't it I don't know the answer yet I've got to figure that out yeah yeah go along you'll find what the script is how to shoot it you know, I'm thinking in a way I'd like to kind of ridicule the Errol Morris approach, you know, where right. you um, <laughs> where you get a big gray thing and hang it behind the interview subject, you know, mm-hmm. and then you shoot it in, and then you shoot it in 4K so you could push in and move it around and do these fake little camera moves and stuff. Because yeah. um, I find Errol Morris's stuff totally bogus, and um, <laughs> I kind of like to, <laughs> like to take his deconstruct his his poor documentary technique you know i'll tell you what you should look at which is brilliant is the um they're doing a thing with the gopro cameras now where they've got a rig that holds like 20 gopros in it and you can shoot it it's basically like an image hoover so it sucks in like everything around it so they're all pointing outwards um and then you can um re-camera that afterwards so you could um so if you put it in the middle of the action it would film everything in like a dome around it and then you can um, decide where the where the camera would be within it. Interesting, yeah. I mean, there's so yeah, there's so many possibilities. But I, I shall defer to the shooter. You know, I always defer yeah. to the cinematographer because I'm not a I'm not a proper shooter. You know, so whoever whoever she is, she can decide. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm I I don't ever operate the camera because it's too heavy. Yeah, it's too heavy. It's too much. Too high. It's hard work, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, I can see the I can see the Chevy Impala coming up the coming up the driveway here with the film commissioner or his or her uh, a minion on board. So I guess this is my ride is here to take me to the western town. Oh wow! It's been lovely talking to you, Alex. It's been great talking to you too. And I, listen, I very very good luck with the release of High Rise, and I look forward to seeing you in person one of these days. Yeah, you too. Good luck with your film, man. I'm sure it will. Um, it's going to be uh, a wild ride. <laughs> I think it'll be just. It'll. It will be a wild ride, and I, and um, but I'm looking forward to it very much, and I'm looking forward to seeing to seeing you um, in 2016. Very good. Goodbye, sir. Cheers, man. This is Nick Dawson from Talk House Film, and you've been listening to Ben Wheatley and Alex Cox on the Talk House Film podcast. And as an important footnote. Cox's crowdfunding campaign for Tombstone Rashomon has in fact been extended by another month, so go visit the project's Indiegogo page and help the man make his movie. This episode was engineered and edited by Elia Einhorn. For more filmmakers talking film and TV, visit thetalkhouse.com film. Subscribe to Talkhouse Film and Talkhouse Music Podcasts on iTunes, where you can find all our previous episodes. And while you're there, please rate and review if you can.